0: Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is the show where you hear all the latest mental health related news. Everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research, into the causes and potential new treatments of mental illness, and how to rid yourself of bad habits. All of that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome to the last edition of Psychiatry Today for 2015. And tonight's podcast was pre-recorded for airing on Wednesday, December 23rd. Hope that you'll look forward to a happy and healthy holiday season. Just a few holiday tips, I guess, would be in order, uh, given that, unfortunately, some people do struggle with mental health issues during the holidays. Uh, Don't feel obligated to go places or do things or be with people that you want no part of. If you feel strongly that it's going to ruin your holidays, take a stand. Um, Yes, there may be guilt, there may be recriminations, Um, it may cause a lot of upset, but think of it this way, Um, even if it's very unpleasant this year, you'll pave the way for things being better for your holidays in subsequent years. Also, don't get out of your routine in terms of sleeping enough, eating the right foods, being careful not to overindulge in the wrong foods. And whatever you do, be careful not to overindulge in alcohol because you'll pay for it by way of being depressed and hungover the next day at least, especially if you're not used to drinking that much the rest of the year. And above all else, um, don't uh, forget to take your medication or get out of your routine if you are on any. And uh, if you're traveling... Keep your medication in your carry-on. If you're checking any luggage, don't put it in there. Uh, because if something happens to your luggage, you're stuck without it. And that's a bad problem to have over the holidays, especially if by any chance you happen to be traveling out of the country. And then also, <clears throat> for those of you who suffer from seasonal affective disorder, that is also known as the winter blues, and that's a manifestation of getting more depressed as there's less daylight in the winter months, light being an antidepressant, and those people who suffer from seasonal affective disorder being more sensitive to the lack of light. Take heart. We've just gone through the winter solstice, and uh, in another few weeks or so, usually by mid-January, you can already start to see the days are noticeably longer. And once you see that, they're going to keep getting a little bit longer every day until blessed Sunday in March when we turn the clocks back ahead and we go back to daylight savings time. I, for one, can't wait. <clears throat> Even though don't necessarily have that mood problem, all of us benefit from having more light. And <clears throat> Not sure how the weather is where you're listening to this podcast, but here in Georgia, although we've had nice stretches of weather and unusually warm, as it has been many other areas of the country, we've been stuck with some pretty long stretches of gray, rainy days. And uh, I'll tell you, those have been devastating. A lot of people really have struggled with that. Well, <clears throat> let's get right into tonight's First topic, again, I try to find whatever is current in the news that relates to mental health and that may be interesting and relevant to those of you who are concerned about those issues. Well, we were talking about the importance of getting enough sleep and staying on your normal sleep-wake cycle and uh, that routine during the holiday season when you're not working, and you don't have your usual uh, wake-up time and bedtime. So here's a study that shows that a lack of sleep tampers with your emotions. Not exactly news, so let's examine the details. The study pinpoints the neural mechanism responsible for impaired neutrality due to sleep loss. Cranky or grumpy after a long night? Your brain's ability to regulate emotions is probably compromised by fatigue. This is bad news for 30% of American adults who get less than six hours of sleep per night. That's statistic according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. Remember, folks, you need to get at least seven hours. Of course, we all know eight is preferable, but don't get less than seven. It's just not healthy. This study was done at <clears throat> Tel Aviv University. They say they've identified the neurological mechanism responsible for disturbed emotion regulation and increased anxiety due to only one night's lack of sleep. You know, when I first read that, I was like, wow, only one night is going to throw someone off that much. The research reveals the changes that sleep deprivation can impose on our ability to to regulate emotions and allocate brain resources for cognitive processing. And The study was published recently in the Journal of Neuroscience. Prior to the study, it wasn't clear what was responsible for the emotional impairments triggered by sleep loss. It was assumed that sleep loss would intensify the processing of emotional images, and thus impede brain capacity for executive function. Researchers were actually surprised to find that this sleep loss significantly impacts the processing of both neutral and emotionally charged images. It turns out we lose our neutrality. The ability of the brain to tell what's important is compromised. It's as if we suddenly think everything is important. For the purpose of the study, researchers kept 18 adults awake all night to take two rounds of tests while undergoing brain mapping using functional MRI or EEG, that's electroencephalogram, first following a good night's sleep, and the second following a night of lack of sleep in the lab. Now, I'll, I'll stop here. Before, a lot of you think, they did what to these people? They purposely kept them up all night? Well, lest you think that was some unethical torture on the part of these scientists, believe me, anyone who agrees to be a subject in the study is very, very well informed in advance. And most likely, these people were paid quite well to agree to be subjects in this study. And if you, if you, you know how it is. If you give people enough money, they'll agree to something like that. Um, but for this research to be conducted at a major university and then for it to be published in a prestigious scientific peer-reviewed journal, uh, they follow very, very strict protocols for ethical conduct of the study. It's um, referred to as the Helsinki Accords uh, because that was where um, <clears throat> scientists agreed many years ago to a set of ethical standards by which research with human subjects would be conducted. Okay, now back to the study. One of the tests required participants to describe in which direction small yellow dots moved over distracting images. These images were positively emotional, like a cat. Uh, <clears throat> don't you find that amusing with all the attention cat videos get on the Internet? And then there were negatively emotional images, a mutilated body, okay? Um, And then there was the neutral image, a spoon. Now, when participants had a good night's rest, they identified the direction of the dots hovering over the neutral images faster and more accurately. And their EEG pointed to differing neurological responses, to neutral and emotional distractors. When they were sleep-deprived, however, the participants performed badly in the cases of both the neutral and the emotional images, and their electrical brain responses, as measured by the EEG, did not reflect a highly different response to the emotional images. This points to decreased regulatory processing. So it could be that sleep deprivation universally impairs judgment, but it is more likely that a lack of sleep causes neutral images to provoke an unexpected emotional response. Then they conducted a second experiment testing concentration levels. Participants were shown neutral and emotional images while performing a task demanding their attention while ignoring distracting background pictures with emotional or neutral content, the depression of a key or a button at certain moments, while inside a functional MRI scanner. This time, researchers measured activity levels in different parts of the brain as they completed the cognitive task. The team found that participants, after only one night of lack of sleep, were distracted by every single image, neutral and emotional, while well-rested participants were only distracted by emotional images. The effect was indicated by activity change in the amygdala, which is a major limbic node in the brain responsible for emotional processing of fearful stimuli. This is more or less your fear center of the brain. They revealed the change in the emotional specificity of the amygdala a region associated with detection and valuation of salient clues in our environment in the course of the cognitive task. And the results reveal that without sleep, the mere recognition of what is an emotional and what is a neutral event is disrupted. We may experience similar emotional provocations from all incoming events, even neutral ones, and lose our ability to sort out more or less important information this can lead to biased cognitive processing and poor judgment, as well as anxiety. These new findings emphasize the vital role sleep plays in maintaining good emotional balance in our life and promoting mental health. And as researchers are currently looking at other methods for sleep intervention, mostly focusing on REM sleep, to reduce the emotional dysregulation seen in anxiety, depression, and traumatic stress disorders. So while they look, For ways to use this data to help people with those psychiatric problems, the bottom line for the rest of us is when we're sleep-deprived, we're likely as not to be unable to maintain emotional neutrality when it's appropriate and to get over-emotional. Again, not exactly a revelation. All right, well, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry
0: Today with Dr. Scott.
2: You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org. Or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome
1: back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Well, shocking new findings of the... A national survey of United States adults on the prevalence of uh, any sort of lifetime drug use disorder. That's at 10 percent. The survey found uh, done in 2012- 2013, nearly 10 percent of Americans, more than 23.3 million people, have um, <clears throat> in their over their lifetime a drug use disorder diagnosis, arising from drug use in that pre- past year or the year prior to that, and many of these individuals were untreated. This according to an article recently published online in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Psychiatry. Drug use disorders are obviously associated with major life role impairment, that's uh, socially familial occupational and also uh, is increased risk for suicide um increased risk for cognitive problems including dementia uh diminished quality of life and increased risk of infectious diseases uh people who abuse drugs and alcohol are more impulsive in terms of their sexual activities so they're more prone to HIV and hepatitis, for example, and uh, that needn't be <clears throat> from needles, uh, which is the other way to get both those diseases. Now, in uh, since two thousand thirteen, when the classification of all mental health diagnoses was revised, um, there actually was a higher diagnostic threshold to make a diagnosis of a substance use disorder. Now, researchers at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism um, and their colleagues analyzed data from this survey. It's called the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions 3, or NISARC 3. It's the third time the survey has been done. It was to report on the prevalence and treatment of drug use disorders based on the new diagnostic classification system. And they did in-person interviews. I mention that because when you hear of or read a lot about studies based on surveys, most of them are done on phone interviews. They just choose random landline and cellular phone numbers um, admittedly this is more public opinion polling rather than scientific research but that's a lot of it how it's done uh, so in this case it was live in-person interviews with over 36,000 adults that is a nice data set that's a big size the drug use disorder was based on uh, anything could be amphetamine marijuana Club drugs, um, cocaine, other types of hallucinogens, um, <clears throat> you know, club drugs, things like ecstasy, and, um, heroin, non-heroin opioids like painkillers, uh, Percocet and uh, Vicodin and what have you, sedatives and tranquilizers like Valium and Ativan and Xanax and Clonopin or solvents or inhalants. Now, the study investigators reported 3.9% of Americans or more than 9.1 million adults had a drug use disorder diagnosis over the previous 12-month period because of drug use in that year and another 9.9% had already lifetime diagnoses from previous years drug use disorders were generally greater among men uh... as opposed to women whites as opposed to other races and uh... also a higher prevalence in native americans uh... the young or previously or never married adults uh... also as opposed to older or married adults and also those adults with lower education and income and as far as any regional differences it was found to be higher in the west part of the country drug use disorders were also associated with alcohol and nicotine use disorders smoking and drinking and a variety of mental health conditions were associated with having a drug use diagnosis this is actually a very common thing (coughs) In fact, the terminology dual diagnosis has been in use for many, many years. It means that someone suffers simultaneously from an alcohol and or a drug use disorder and another non-substance-related psychiatric disorder, including major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and various different types of personality disorders. And then you also have the anxiety disorders like generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and social phobia. Now, I want to emphasize the links between uh, any substance abuse disorder and social phobia. Social phobia is people who are not just shy by nature, but they are so anxious in social situations or around other people that they are paralyzed by fear that they will say or do something embarrassing or that they will be judged or scrutinized in a negative way such that they go out of their way to avoid interaction with other people. And lest you think this is simply we psychiatrists uh, or other mental health professionals medicalizing shyness, anything but that, um, in severe cases, this is extremely disabling, and people can be completely homebound. Uh, it's been my consistent observation over the course of my career that if you come across someone who is a recovering alcoholic or who is an active alcoholic, there's a large percentage of these people who have social phobia. Uh, and the reason is because very early on in life, quite typically, the social phobic realizes that after two or three drinks, not only is that severe anxiety uh, caused by being around other people in social situations gone, that they go from not wanting to be at the party at all to being the life of the party and of course it becomes a necessity it becomes a habit it becomes a uh dependency and so there you go that's why they they will always uh, find an association between social anxiety and alcoholism now disability as a result of drug use disorders increased with greater severity uh in adults with 12 month uh, in the, the drug use disorder diagnoses had lower mental health social functioning and what they called role emotional functioning. but while drug use disorders are very common and disabling, they weren't largely untreated. Among adults for whom they found within the past 12 months a drug use disorder diagnosis, 13.5 percent received treatment only 13.5 percent. And uh, if you look at drug use disorder diagnosis over the lifetime of these folks, not just in the past year, only 24.6% had ever had any treatment, not even a quarter. The average age for first treatment of a drug use disorder was 27.7 years old, nearly four years later than the average onset of the drug use disorder. It takes a long time for someone to realize they have a problem and want to stop and get help. That's the problem with a drug use disorder or any substance use disorder. It depends on the person coming to their own realization that they have a problem, they need to stop, they want to stop, and they're willing to do what it takes to stop. Otherwise, uh, they're not going to get the help that they need. But... even when someone like that decides they do want to get help, it's often very difficult to get. Uh, we are all well aware of the stigma surrounding mental health diagnoses in the United States, and uh, there's certainly uh, also an additional stigma when it comes to substance abuse disorders, because at least people might see that a mental health diagnosis is something that is either inherited or brought on by stress, whereas people tend to uh, view substance abuse disorders more negatively, uh, blaming the person for making their own bad lifestyle choices rather than accepting that um, it is a disorder uh, and uh, they have difficulty getting under control, even if they would like to. Furthermore, there are very strict limits imposed by health insurance companies on treatment for substance abuse disorders and partly that is in response to the excesses on the part of substance abuse detox and rehab clinics throughout the nineteen seventies and eighties admitting people bleeding their insurance dry and then discharging them charging inordinate amounts of money that eventually led to the health industry cracking down and uh, putting very strict limits on treatment at these facilities. So the issue that uh, is the upshot of the study is that these drug use disorders are very prevalent among United States adults. Uh, The public is increasingly less likely to disapprove of specific types of drug use. Uh, For example, look at all the states where uh, medical marijuana, at least, and in some cases recreational use of marijuana, is becoming, if not legalized, decriminalized, or to see it uh, as less risky. And consistent with these attitudes, laws governing drug use becoming more permissive. But these findings on the disability and the comorbidity uh, that goes along with drug use disorders show they're very serious conditions affecting many millions of Americans. And um, again, it really is a shame that for people who get into trouble with these chemicals, that it's so difficult for them to get help even when they realize they need it. Um, We have a long way to go before the tide turns toward saying, okay, this person has a problem, they need to get help so they can stop. Uh, It needs to be a lot easier to access this treatment than it is. Well, it's time for our next commercial break. We'll have more mental health related news when we come back. Matt, you are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
3: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol.
2: Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you're able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will likely continue to rise, while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is, Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We believe in taking care of the whole patient, because healing is more than writing a prescription. We are committed to working with you, and we specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage, and we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills, because Peachtree e Center is where patient care counts.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Well, here's a new study showing hard evidence for how the brain of someone with ADHD works differently. Um, ADHD, of course, stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. We don't use the term ADD anymore, that's outmoded terminology, and even though you'll find it quite commonly used, um, it has three types. There's an attentive type, hyperactive impulsive type, and then combined type. Uh, <clears throat> it turns out that, according to this new study, the interactions between the attention-grabbing brain networks are weak, which... Certainly isn't is not an unexpected finding, but it's very interesting to document it, and it gives further hard scientific evidence that there is something different about the functioning of the brain in people with ADHD. Thus, further refuting those who would claim that there is no such diagnosis, or uh, ludicrously claim that it's made up by doctors and drug companies to push drugs on kids or those who would say, well, I don't believe in that as if it were subject to belief. Of course, that's ridiculous. It's many decades of scientific research to document it. And furthermore, those who would say it's either bad teaching or bad parenting. Uh, so again, this, reviewing this study with you kind of uh, goes along with one of my goals for this podcast, which is to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis that, okay, if you have ADHD, this is uh, something that is real. And that's it's a physical difference that can be documented. That's why it is often, but not always, treated with a physical treatment, medication. All right. So these interactions between three brain networks that help people pay attention normally are weaker than normal in children with ADHD. This new study comes to us from Stanford University School of Medicine. The degree of weakness was correlated to the severity of the children's inattention symptoms study was published online on December the 15th in the journal Biological Psychiatry. Researchers focused on what's called the salience network. Just think of the name. What's salient? What stands out? What you're supposed to pay attention to? This is a set of brain regions that work together through well-synchronized activity to help decide where one's attention should be directed. In most children, this network can act, can assess rather the importance of internal and external events and then regulate other thoughts to focus attention in the right place. A lot of things may be happening in one's environment, but only some grab our attention. The salience network helps us stop daydreaming or thinking about something that happened yesterday so we can focus on the task at hand. Now, from just what we've learned about what this is, it stands to reason that if someone has ADHD, the salience network is not functioning well, right? Because these kids and adults too have trouble figuring out what is salient and sticking with it. Researchers found that this network's ability to regulate interactions with other brain systems is weaker in kids with ADHD. More than 6 million children in the United States, or 11% of children aged 4 through 17, have received ADHD diagnoses. The disorder is characterized by impulsiveness, hyperactivity, and difficulty paying attention. Kids with ADHD tend to struggle in school, have trouble with friendships, and be more prone to injury than other children their age. Now, at present, diagnosing ADHD admittedly is quite subjective, with different thresholds of behavior used to make the diagnosis in different places. For instance, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2011, 7.3% of California children had at some point been diagnosed with ADHD, making the state one of five nationwide with diagnosis rates below 8% among children. At the other end of the spectrum, six states had rates above 15%. It would be very beneficial to have a diagnostic measure that uses more objective and reliable measures not just clinical and parental um, and teacher assessments of behavior, which is mostly what is used now. This study that we're talking about demonstrates what hopefully will someday be considered a very robust biological marker based on functional neuroimaging to reliably differentiate children with ADHD from other kids. Well, the problem is a functional MRI scan, such as what they did in this study, is unbelievably expensive and certainly not FDA approved for using in this manner. No insurance company is going to pay for it. So it's going to take a lot of changes to uh, the medical care system and, and how tests are paid for uh, till we get to the point where well, your kid not paying attention to school or not sitting still, let's put them in an MRI scanner to see if they have ADHD. <clears throat> so what the researchers did is they they studied these functional MRI brain scans. And by the way, functional MRI, how is that different from regular MRI, like you can go down the road to your neighborhood hospital radiology department or outpatient uh, imaging center? Functional MRI looks at what is changing in your brain in real time as you perform certain tasks or think about certain uh, ideas or subjects or look at certain images and process them. So they looked at 180 kids, half with ADHD and half without. They took the scans where they were awake but resting quietly And then they also had assessed these kids uh, in advance for ADHD symptoms using the traditional diagnostic methods. And the results are noteworthy in part because they were replicated. um, Independent data sets from three different sites in New York, Portland, and Beijing. Uh, The researchers scored each brain scan according to the synchronization between the salience network and two other related brain networks. The default mode network, which is a set of brain regions that directs self-referential activities, such as daydreaming. Uh, you can think of that as what's in, in use or functioning when you're not particularly thinking about anything and your mind is just sort of drifting around. That's the default network. And then the other set of uh, brain regions governs the central executive network, which manipulates information in working memory. Now, to focus one's attention, the salience network has to turn down the activity of the default mode network, or the daydreaming one, and turn up the activity of the central executive network, the one processing, uh, information in working memory. Now, this should make perfect sense. If you yourself had been a kid with ADHD and, uh, you were told you were a daydreamer or your parents were told you were a daydreamer, or maybe you have a kid yourself or a grandkid who has ADHD and, uh, they have a reputation of being a daydreamer. Uh, you know, now we have some answers from these, uh... very elegant brain scan studies that shows that when you have adhd uh... you're not able to tell what's salient uh... because that network is not functioning right and it's not doing its job by turning down the default mode network which lets you daydream uh... and not turning up the uh... central executive network which helps you process information and memory well, researchers have previously proposed that this poor coordination between these three brain networks could underlie a variety of psychiatric and neurological depression uh, problems, not just ADHD, including depression, schizophrenia, brain injury, autism, and drug addiction the children with ADHD had weaker interactions between these networks than children without the condition. The difference was large enough that brain scans could distinguish kids who had ADHD from those who did not. Among the children with ADHD, worse scores on clinical tests of inattentiveness were linked with weaker interactions between these three brain networks. And these networks come up over and over in pretty much every cognitive task they asked subjects to do. And they're critical for information processing and attending to stimuli in the environment. Hopefully future research will explore whether functional MRI scans can also differentiate between the brains of children with ADHD And those with other psychiatric or neurodevelopmental conditions, for example, autism spectrum disorders, let's say, answering that question is an important aspect of determining whether brain scans could become a practical component of ADHD diagnosis. Well, fascinating and elegantly done research, and again, more evidence of a hard physical effect of ADHD, a difference in the brain of kids with or without ADHD. But as far as this ever becoming a useful and practical diagnostic test for ADHD, um, you know, it's not a question of radiation like CAT scans or x-rays. You know, it's a magnetic field, so that's not the issue. Um... So I really think it's not that the test itself would be harmful, but it's so awfully expensive. I really don't know how the cost could ever come down to where doctors and parents um, and, and would just say, oh, okay, well, uh, to really make sure this kid has ADHD, let's put them in an fMRI scanner. I don't see that happening anytime soon, even though we psychiatrists would love to have diagnostic tests For the disorders that we diagnose basically just by talking to people and asking them questions. Be right back with more mental health news after this break. Affordable health insurance was the
2: promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
0: the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's web radio with all the latest mental health-related news. If you suffer from ringing in the ears or tinnitus, could also be called tinnitus, or you know someone who does, You definitely want to listen up to this next item I'm about to go over with you. Um, Emotion processing in the brain changes with the severity of tinnitus, um, which affects nearly one-third of adults over the age of 65. The condition can develop as part of age-related hearing loss or from a traumatic injury. In either case, the resulting persistent noise causes highly varying amounts of disruption to everyday life, depending on the individual tinnitus sufferer. Now, this can also happen in much younger people. And uh, <clears throat> the interesting thing and part of uh, what they're looking at in the study is that While some tinnitus patients adapt to the condition and just deal with it and go on about their lives and are not bothered by it, many others are forced to limit their daily activities as a direct result of their symptoms. A new study reveals that people who are less bothered by their tinnitus use different brain regions when processing emotional information. And this research was published recently in the journal PLOS One. Researchers used functional magnetic resonance imaging. um, And we just talked about that in the previous segment about the ADHD in kids study. It's an imaging tool that enables researchers to see changes in blood oxygen levels in the brain during an activity. So using fMRI... Researchers had previously compared how the brain processes emotions in patients with mild tinnitus and people without any tinnitus. While in the fMRI scanner, study participants listened to and rated pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sounds. For example, kids giggling, babies crying, and people babbling in the background. The researchers reported that in contrast to those without tinnitus, patients with mild tinnitus showed greater engagement of different areas in the brain while processing emotional sounds. To further understand this altered brain activation, they conducted a new fMRI study to see if there were any differences among tinnitus patients. Because some patients adjust to the ringing in the ears, while others do not, the severity of the condition can vary greatly. Researchers measured the severity of tinnitus, or tinnitus distress, with a series of surveys and questionnaires, assessing hearing, attention, emotion, and sleep. Patients with lower tinnitus distress, used an altered pathway to process emotional information. This path did not rely on the amygdala, which is an area of the brain commonly believed, and in fact demonstrated, I don't know why this article says believed, it's been demonstrated to play an important role in emotional processing in the brain, especially of fearful or negative stimuli. Instead, patients who had adapted to their tinnitus symptoms used more of the brain's frontal lobe, which is critical for attention planning and impulse control. Researchers suggested, therefore, that this greater activation of the frontal lobe might be helping to control emotional responses and reduce tinnitus distress. Another aim of the research was to evaluate possible interventions to help patients reduce tinnitus distress. Of course, why why otherwise study it then? The study reported that physical activity might influence emotion processing and help to improve the quality of life of those bothered by tinnitus. Future research on the topic Will also include active duty service members, a group highly affected by trauma-induced early onset tinnitus. Now, people who have served in the armed forces—they're uh, exposed to just blisteringly loud noises: ordnance exploding, uh, fighter jets taking off and landing. I mean. Uh, never mind the ones who have been devastated by uh, explosions from roadside bombs and improvised explosive devices and and so on. Uh, Just during normal training and preparation, uh, they're exposed to just incredibly uh, loud noises. And so uh, it would be great to study these folks to see what could be learned, uh, especially to help younger people. The take home message for me is that, you know, we didn't really know a lot about why some people with tinnitus are tremendously distressed by it and can become extremely anxious and depressed by it. Whereas other people say, well, yep, I hear it, but you know, I just deal with it and I move on and it doesn't bother me. Uh, so at least this gives us some insight into that even though admittedly it doesn't lead to, you know, help or cure for tinnitus, which really I think, um, you know, would love to see that happen someday, but that type of uh, advance may never come. Um, I think if you are a tinnitus sufferer, I think the key to living with and coping the condition, with the condition is really – more psychological intervention as opposed to any physical intervention. First of all, do not waste your money on any of these things that are sold on TV or online or that you see in the store. There's no pills or supplements or herbs or whatever the heck else they are that will cure your tinnitus. This is just a waste of money. Um, The proven effective treatments involve... Things like devices that look a lot like hearing aids, but are made to uh, disguise or kind of give background masking noises to distract someone from the tinnitus so that it would not cause as much distress. And then there are pure cognitive behavioral approaches to tinnitus. uh, And really it's training the person and training their brain to not pay so much attention to that awful loud ringing noise in their heads, and this is easier said than done. It takes a long time, and uh, it takes, uh, like any cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of skill and learning and practice that has to be taught and practice. But these really are the most effective treatments for tinnitus that exist. To this day. Uh, in my opinion, it would be fascinating to see if you could take some people who have a high level of distress from their tinnitus, um, put them in the functional MRI scanner uh, to see uh, if, if they had the same results as people in this study. You would see they're using uh, more of their limbic area, the amygdala, to process emotional information and then give them a hopefully successful course of cognitive behavioral therapy to learn how to, uh, if not ignore the tinnitus, at least not be as distressed by it, then put them in the fMRI scanner again and see if they would be switching to using more of the frontal uh, lobe of the brain to process emotional information. I mean, based on what we know from this one study, I uh, would expect that to be the outcome. But I think as far as what else can be done about tinnitus, like most other medical problems we doctors treat, no matter what part of the body, no matter what organ system, it's prevention. So if you're using uh, power equipment in the yard or in the house or in your workshop, put protection on your ears. Um, if you're going to loud rock concerts, yes, put earplugs in. Um, trust me, the amplifiers will be plenty loud. You'll still be able to hear every single note, um, but it will protect your ears to some degree from <clears throat> actual damage. And uh, lastly, uh, again, part of prevention is regular checkups, right? So, uh, not only should you be seeing your primary care physician, your dentist, your OB-GYN if you're a woman, and so on, but you should also have your hearing checked on a regular basis. Um, <clears throat> people who have uh, loss of hearing are at increased risk for tinnitus. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. And actually, uh, as I Said before, this is the last podcast for 2015. And before I completely sign off, I I want to express uh, my heartfelt uh, sentiments for happy holidays and healthy new year coming for all of you. Uh, Look forward to bringing you more interesting, if not helpful, mental health related information in 2016. And Uh, Also, I want to thank those of you who have been loyal listeners to this podcast, uh, whether that's downloading it from iTunes, especially give a shout out to you folks, cannot tell you how much your uh, loyal listenership means to me, and that also uh, goes out to those of you who either listen live on Wednesday nights at 7 on AmericasWebRadio.com or those of you who. Play back the podcast at your leisure at any time on americaswebradio.com. Thank you once again for your listenership. And um, <clears throat> I uh, hope that in the coming year there will be less and less occasions when I have to talk to you about the top story in the news being a mental health uh, problem leading to an active shooter situation where people get killed. That's my fervent wish for 2016. It's tiresome, folks. But in any case, until I'm with you again in three weeks, I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free holiday season. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott.
0: Good night, and thank you so much for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you
2: for listening.